God, our minds can't even begin to fathom, to imagine all that you are, your holiness, your perfection, your glory, your loving kindness, your grace. We know this, that thousands upon thousands, hundreds of hundreds of thousands of angels are gathered before your throne right now, covering their faces and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I pray today, God, that your, your presence would fill your temple. We are your temple, God, fill us. God, give us your heart, heart that loves the world. God, give us your heart for our neighbor. Give us your heart for the city. Give us your heart, God, for the things that are broken and hurting all around us. The injustice, the poverty, the racism. God, we pray for our nation and all the ways, God, in which hurt people hurt people and the ways in which we hurt you. Forgive us, God. Have mercy on us. Cleanse us. Wash us. And for the nations, God, you love the world. There's so much brokenness. We pray for all those living in Turkey and Syria right now and all that they're going through, God, with the devastation of the earthquake, God. We pray, Lord, for the war going on in Ukraine right now, God. It's, it, it's something we don't even know how to pray, but we can at least pray this, God. We pray that your church right now, wherever it is, God, because it's gathering all over the globe, that you would fill us with your power, your presence, your shalom, and God, that we could then go into these places of chaos and be among it, be tiny bits of heaven to it. God, we claim your promise that you are reconciling the world to yourself through Jesus Christ, and you've now made us ministries, ministers of that reconciliation, that you partner with us, God. And God, would you anoint us for such a task? May your church rise up and be all that you intended when you died for your church and then unleashed your church. Be your light in a dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. And I would say be seated, except go to your Bibles to Mark 13. Does anybody have a page number in a blue Bible? You guys will be seated in just a bit. I know, you're getting a little tired. There's gonna be a lot of people standing at Super Bowl today. (laughs) Just kidding. Not trying to guilt anybody. Okay, Mark chapter 13. Anybody have a page number? Shout it out. Okay, 825. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, Rabbi, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Look at them because not one stone here will be left upon another. Every one will be thrown down. And then as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us 
when will these things happen and what will be a sign that they are going to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming that I am he and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. And on account of me, you'll stand before governors and king, kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations whenever you are arrested and brought to trial. Do not worry beforehand about what you will say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And then when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one on the housetop go down or into the house or take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord has not cut short those days, no one would be able to survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. And at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs, false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Be on your guard. I told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will fall from the skies and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, the people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and to the ends of the heavens. And learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get ten tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is God's word. You can be seated. Okay, we're gonna have some fun this morning. <laughs> I've, I've learned uh, that if you wanna start a good food fight with Christians, uh, just bring up politics. Uh, do that tonight at a Super Bowl party. Um, or just start talking about eschatology. Uh, eschatology is a fancy term for end times. I think if we're honest, we all have these curiosities, don't we? We all, we all want to know where this thing is going. Uh, we all want to know how it's going to end. Uh, I think even sometimes our mind flirts with questions like, are, are we right now living in the end? And the reason why I, I, I say all of this is because I think when we come to a text like Mark 13, we're, we're quick to just put it in this bucket. We, we read all this apocalyptic language like wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, uh, stars falling from the sky, moon turning blood red, 
Um, and we just assume then that Jesus is talking about the end times. For those who have read uh, this text this way, uh, don't walk out on me today. <laughs> Give it a chance because the application is actually the most important part. I don't have an agenda. My only agenda is to, is to be biblical. And, and, and to be biblical, to, to truly know what the text is saying, we, we also need to lay aside what this text means to us. And we first need to do some of the hard work of what this text would first mean to the original audience. I'll start with this. Jesus is definitely talking about future events, but what future? And let's start with the context of the whole thing, uh, because something ignites Jesus to start talking about everything he talks about in Mark chapter 13. Uh, look at verse 1. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, Rabbi, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Uh, the disciples are doing what, what everyone did in that day when they were uh, in the temple or near the temple is they were just awestruck by it. I mean, it was easily the most beautiful building in the, in the whole world. And it's not even just the Jewish people that thought that. Even the Romans, when they saw this temple, they just, they, they marveled at it. But to every Jew, this is more than just the most beautiful building in the world. I mean, I don't think we really have an equivalent today. Uh, it was far more than a cathedral. It was far more than a Vatican. It was... It was even more than a place of worship. In, in their minds, that place was the actual garden of God. It's, it's where heaven met earth, where, where heaven came down and flooded earth. It, it, it's Eden to them. It's where God lives. It's his house. It's his address. It's where the manifest presence and glory of God is. So I remember as a kid, uh, one of the songs that we used to sing in church uh, went something like this, we're marching to Zion, to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. Did anybody sing that song growing up? Okay, a couple of you. It was always this idea, this song about uh, someday we'll all uh, go to heaven. And, and you need to know, though, that this song, we're marching to Zion, is actually what the, the pilgrims in Jesus' day sung as, as they went to this place. In, in their mind, they were marching to Zion, to Zion, to beautiful Zion, because in their minds, that place was heaven on earth. And we've been looking at the uh, last week of Jesus' life, and, I, and we've seen that this huge confrontation is, is taking place. It's, it's, it's a clash, really, of, of two temples, of a bricks and mortar temple and the people that run that, and a walking temple, Jesus. And this whole thing, uh, Jesus is not just passive and, and a victim in all this. In many ways, he's, he's the instigator of this clash. I mean, it starts with his grand entrance into Jerusalem when he rides in uh, as the Messiah. And then immediately following that, he goes directly into the temple. And the text says that night he just walked around it looking at it. Uh, almost like what a quarterback would do uh, the, the night before a big game when they step out on the field and just kind of walk around the field and get ready for, for, for the game on the next day. And sure enough, the next day, it's game on. Jesus goes into that temple. He cleanses it. He calls it my house. 
He then curses the fig tree. The fig tree uh, represents the temple and its leadership. Uh, it's his way of just saying, you guys are cursed. This whole enterprise is cursed. Then Jesus tells the parable of, of the vineyard with the tenants. The vineyard itself, too, is another picture, metaphor uh, for the temple, uh, the garden of God. And the tenants are the priests who, who run it. And in this parable, uh, the tenants hijack uh, the vineyard from the owner. So God uh, sends uh, uh, these stewards to, to come and reclaim it. They kill them. Those people represent the prophets. And then the owner says, well, how about if I send my own son? Truly, they will honor my son. But when these tenant uh, farmers see the son, they beat him, they kill him. And Jesus ends that parable by saying, I am the chief stone. And we kind of miss what Jesus is saying because we also don't understand that stone is just another uh, synonym for, for temple, for God's house. This goes all the way back to Jacob when he put his head on a stone that one night and all of a sudden the staircase from heaven came down upon that stone uh, connecting heaven and earth. And Jacob woke up that morning, named that stone uh, Bethel, which means God's house, the house of God, because that's what it is. It's where the staircase of God brings heaven to earth. So when God says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, God is, is saying, see, I, I, I put my house in that place. When Jesus says, I am the chief stone, he's saying, I am the true house of God and reject it and you'll be crushed to pieces. And so that's what this whole collision is about. It's a collision of two temples. And now in Mark 13, the disciples are gushing over this bricks and mortar temple and it causes Jesus to say what he says in verse two. Just pretty much, guys, look at it. Because it's all coming down. There won't even be one stone on top of another. Now that, that thought would have been utterly inconceivable to any Jew at this time. It was, it was unimaginable. I mean, this is where God lives. This is where we meet with him, where we encounter him, where he forgives us, where he fills us. I mean, imagine right now, if, if somehow we had the audible voice of Jesus uh, telling us that every building in D.C. is coming down from the White House, the Capitol building, the Pentagon, all of it would be destroyed and not one stone would be left on another. If Jesus told us that, what would be our response? It'd be like, when? When's this going to happen? Look at verse four. Jesus, when's this gonna happen? And, and, and is there anything that, that, that will signal this event? Um, are, are there any signs that, that we can know about? And so how Jesus answers their, their, their question, in my opinion, uh, has been hugely taken out of context uh, by Christians over the years because we've interpreted everything that Jesus says here uh, to, to mean the signs of the end of the world. But Jesus is not talking about the end of the world here or the end of time. He's talking about the end of a world, the end of a time, because a grand epoch is coming to an end. 
Because when you stop and think about it, God has lived in that house on a hill for an entire millennium with his people. And what an age it was. For a thousand years, God dwelled with his people by living in that house on that hill. And Jesus is telling his disciples, this age is coming to an end. In fact, Jesus' prophecy here to his disciples is not a new one. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 7, you can just listen to these words. This is what the sovereign Lord says to the land of Israel. The end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. The end is now upon you, and I will unleash my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct. This is what the sovereign Lord says, disaster, unheard of disaster. See, it comes. The end has come. The end has come. It has roused itself against you. See, it comes. Doom has come upon you, upon you who dwell in the land. The time has come. The day is near. And that depicts the destruction of God's temple. Not the end of time, but the end of a time. And I want us to see what Jesus is preparing uh, his disciples for. Um, God is no longer going to save, redeem, and dwell with his people through that, that vehicle, that temple. In fact, I think this is why some of Jesus' boldest uh, declarations about himself are also in light of that te temple. Uh, one time Jesus says, I tell you the truth, one greater than the temple is here. Or another time he says, destroy this temple. And he's not talking about the bricks and mortar temple. He's talking about himself being the tr true temple. Destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. Because the, the, the true temple of God is Christ. And he is the temple to which even the bricks and mortar temple pointed. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He is the Melchizedek. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, this is precisely what the book of Hebrews is about. It, it, it's to tell us that Jesus is the ultimate temple, the ultimate priest. He is the final sacrifice. He is everything that the temple pointed to. So with the coming of Christ now, you have to think about what this means in regards to this bricks and mortar temple where for a thousand years God's people have been coming all of a sudden now, it's priests, it's sacrifices, the building itself, everything associated with it is irrelevant. It's obsolete. Why do I go to a temple and offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins when Jesus Christ is a lamb of God, the sacrifice lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Why do I stand before a priest who washes me so that I can now draw near to God when I have a high priest, Christ, who has already washed me from the inside out and cleansed me of all past, present, and future sins? And so, I mean, this is, this is massive, and, and especially for God's people 
at this time, it's literally shattering the lens by which they looked at God, and it's shattering the very vehicle by which they related to God. But I find God to be just so pastoral in this. Because God knows that for a thousand years, his people have come to this place to meet with him, to draw near to him, to have their sins forgiven. And God knows that this is not going to be an easy thing for them to give up, which is why God almost has to take it away. And he gives them 40 years because 40 in their Bible is the number of testing. It took 40 years to transition from the bricks and mortar temple to the true temple. Christ. So in verses 5 to 13, Jesus tells his disciples, here are the signs that will mark the end to this bricks and mortar temple. And Jesus starts with the things that are going to happen on the world's stage. In verses 6 to 8, he says, uh, there's going to be many wannabe messiahs. They're going to show up claiming I am he. He says there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, uprisings, nation against nation, civil wars, earthquakes, famine. He says, look for these things. And then in verses uh, 9 to 13, Jesus makes this really personal. He says, guys, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. These will be the signs. You're pretty much going to be treated the way that they're going to treat me. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be tried. You're going to be sometimes beaten. Uh, There's going to be the threat of death. Everyone's going to hate you, even brothers, parents, relatives, friends. And I love this in this moment because I'm sure these guys are just wide-eyed and just taking it all in. Jesus says, but hey, don't, listen, I'm going to be there with you. Uh, you're not, you're not going to have to worry about like the words that you're going to have to speak because in that moment, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be with you through my spirit. And I'm going to give you the actual words that, 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 that you will speak. And then I read the book of Acts and I see the courage and the chutzpah of these guys, especially uh, when they're arrested, when they're brought to trial, when they're standing before uh, kings and councils and supreme courts and uh, the, the, the courage that they have. And they probably still have these words ringing in their, in their heart that Jesus is with us right now. He's standing with us. He's giving us the words. And then in verse 13, uh, Jesus gives them a very specific instruction. It's pretty much the instruction to stand firm. In, in, in the actual Greek, it's the word meno. Meno, it's a two-part word. Meno means to remain or to stand or to stay. And hooper uh, is the, from which we get the word hyper. Uh, so it, it, it's to hyper remain. It's to hyper Stand. And again, he's telling them to do this uh, in this crucible of suffering that they're going to experience to just stay, to stay in the pocket, to remain, to stand, to hyperstand. But then one verse later in verse 14, Jesus changes his tune. And he tells them here to flee, to run, to, to, to get out of Dodge. And he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, this is code language. It, it comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 8 and 9. Uh, and, and it refers to uh, when, when, when 
when paganism is set up in God's house, in God's living room, in his holy of holies, that's the whole abomination that causes desolation. Uh, the reason why, too, I think uh, Mark here is using cold language is because this book of Mark is written to Christians living in Rome. But the way that Luke puts it in his gospel, he doesn't have to use cold language because he's not writing to Christians living uh, in Rome right under the nose of the emperor. Uh, he can just say, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, that's your sign to run. That's when you move from hupermeno to remain to hyperstand to now run, flee, get out of Dodge. So here's where I ask the question, why would Jesus uh, have to say this to his disciples to tell them to run? Well, they're Jews. And you don't have to be a card-carrying zealot at this time to actually be a zealot. Every Jew, every common Jew at this time had zealotry in their blood. So what Jesus is really saying to these disciples is, guys, resist the temptation to fight when those armies surround your beloved city, Jerusalem. Yes, I know in your heart, everything in you is going to want to take up the sword and fight the Romans. But Jesus is pretty much saying, this is not the battle that I want you to die fighting for, not this one. Now, here's where... Uh, I have to be careful that the sermon doesn't turn into a history lesson. But I want you to show you how prophetic Jesus is. In the 60s AD, which is less than a generation after Jesus, the Roman Empire was hit hard with earthquakes, much like we read about uh, this, this week um, in Turkey and Syria. Places like Laodicea uh, and Colossae, which are also uh, in Turkey today, uh, were literally flattened. Um, even Rome was greatly impacted. Imagine this, in 64 AD, almost the entire city of Rome itself, the world's greatest city, burned. Huge fire. The emperor at this time, Nero, uh, blamed the Christians and unleashed a brutal persecution upon them he arrested them. He brought them to, 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 to trial so he could blame them for the fire. And then most of them were executed. And trust me, the executions were not pretty. Many of them were thrown to the lions and the animals as halftime shows in the games. Others of them were torches in his garden, uh, lighting up his garden at night by being burned. The Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, neither one of them survived uh, Nero's persecution. Peter was crucified uh, upside down. Paul's head was cut off by Nero. In AD 66, Rome declared war against the Jews living in Palestine. So here came Rome with its legions. They laid siege to Jerusalem. And this is what the Roman historian Josephus, who was an eyewitness to this war, uh, this, is, this is what he writes. And remember, he's an eyewitness. He says, as the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem, thousands of Jews starved to death. They fought each other for the scraps. In fact, more Jews were killed by Jews fighting for the scraps than by Romans. 
Mothers grew so desperate that they ate their own babies to stay alive. Many false messiahs came and went, promising victory. After Nero's death in 69 AD, while the siege is still going on, civil war broke out in the Roman Empire, nation against nation. Four different emperors in one year. The world quaked. Thousands of Christians as well were put to death during this time. In 70 AD, the Romans made good of Jesus' prophecy. Jerusalem was sacked. The temple was completely destroyed. And Josephus tells us this. uh, the, The general Vespasian ordered his soldiers to remove every stone from the temple mount. Not one stone stood on, it, on the other. And Rome was very Roman in how they carried out this war. As they drew closer to victory, Roman legions would nail as many as 500 Jews a day to crosses. It was a holocaust. What kind of language do you use to describe such horrors? The language of the prophets. The stars fall from the sky. The moon turned red. This is the imagery that the prophets used to speak of horrific events. But listen, was this the end of the world? No, it was the end of a world. Of course, thousands of Jews, when this is happening, is, is, is thinking it's the end of the world. They're probably wishing it was the end of the world, but it was the end of a world. And what Jesus did as a prophet is he predicted it. He even enacted it when he cleansed the uh, temple and when he cursed the fig tree. And so let's bring all of this back uh, to this collision of of temples. um, Because both temples, both the bricks and mortar temple and the walking temple, Christ, are crushed and destroyed, but only one temple would be destroyed and rise again. And this temple, the true temple of God, lives, he lives right now. And starting with Jesus' uh, resurrection and then his ascension, Jesus is not only victorious in all of this, but he is also vindicated Uh, in that he proves to be the true temple of God who still stands to this day. In fact, I love the language that Jesus uses uh, to describe this in verse 26. At this time, says Jesus, many will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. (laughs) Is he descending? from heaven to earth, or is he ascending from earth to heaven? It says, Jesus quoting uh, this verse uh, from Daniel chapter seven, the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. In fact, uh, this depiction, uh, son of man, is Jesus' uh, favorite title that he uses for himself. And this is what David Flusser, who's one of the foremost scholars of first century Judaism, he's not a Christian, um, he's, he's a Jewish scholar, um, but this is his text too. He says, the concept of the son of man is the highest and most godlike concept of the Messiah that ancient Judaism ever knew. 
And this concept comes out of Daniel chapter 7. It comes from uh, chapter 7, verse 13, where, where Daniel describes this vision in this way. He says, I saw one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds. So again, the question is, is the Son of Man coming or is he going? Is he uh, arriving in the heavens or is he departing the heavens for earth? And this is where I agree with N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright says coming in the clouds is not Christ departing heaven for earth, as Christians often think about it, but it's actually Christ ascending from earth to heaven. Because if you look at the context of Daniel 7, Daniel 7 uh, is this vision that Daniel has of this, this terrifying beast who, who wreaks terror and death and destruction on the four corners of the world. But then all of a sudden, someone slays the, that beast, and you're asking, who slayed it? It's Daniel 7, verse 13. It's one like the Son of Man. And upon killing the beast, the Son of Man returns from the battle, and he comes in the clouds to stand before the Ancient of Days. And what you almost need to envision is that as, as he's standing before the Ancient of Days as this great dragon slayer, like he's got sword in one hand and the head of the dragon in the other hand, it's here where God knights him and says to him, you are now Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and your dominion is over everything, and that dominion is forever and ever. And this is why this is Jesus' favorite title for himself, Son of Man. Why? Because he came to the world to slay the beast. But the beast is not who the first century Jews thought it was. They thought it was Rome. And they didn't go far enough back in their story. They didn't go to Genesis 3. The beast is that snake in that garden who infected God's good creation with its poisonous venom. Jesus defeats that beast and, and, and its deadly curse that that beast brought to the world, and he did it through a cross. And following Jesus' resurrection, verse 26 of Mark 13, is fulfilled. Jesus ascended to heaven and the disciples saw him being enveloped in the clouds. And where did he go? But to sit at God's right hand as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and his dominion is total and it's forever. And that's who he is and that's where he is. And just because Mark 13 isn't about the end times doesn't mean that there isn't an end to which the whole thing is moving. Wrong text. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4. Go to Revelation 21 and 22. And that talks about the end. But I think the reason why Christians run this text to the end of the world is because we fail to see the importance of this event that Jesus is describing, that bricks and mortar temple, it needed to be destroyed because that building is, is no longer the place where God lives. It's no longer the garden of God. So what is the garden of God? Look around. We're the temple of God. We're the garden of God. 
And do you know the significance of this? We are the very presence of God on earth. We're God's vineyard. And we're planted in this world for this world. It means that God right now is doing his his work of new birth, of new creation, of making all things new. He's doing that in us and through us for the sake of the world. In fact, I think verse 10 is the key verse in, in our text today. It says, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. This is Jesus' mission This is the mission that Jesus gave the disciples. This is the mission that Jesus gave the church. This must be our mission. And what's the gospel? Well, we've been learning a lot about that in Mark's gospel. The gospel is is the good news. It's the good news about a king, a son of man who reigns and is Lord of all. It's the good news about this king's kingdom that brings shalom to chaos. And I am talking about all chaos, the chaos of guilt and sin, the chaos of Satan and his minions, the chaos of disease and poverty, sickness, suffering, racism, injustice, even death itself. And what Jesus says in verse 27, when he says, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth uh, to the ends of the heaven, uh, that that word that we've translated as as angel, I think it causes us to, to not feel the gospel urgency that is in this text because we just misapply this uh, verse to angelic beings, but the word here simply means messenger. In Mark 1, verse 2, it's the word used of John the Baptist. John is a messenger. And the messengers in in verse 27 are not angelic beings. The messengers are the disciples, the apostles. It's the church. It's us. God is sending us to the four corners of the earth. Why? Because we are now the garden of God. And that garden of God, the garden of Eden, had the river of life flowing in it, into it. That river of life is the presence of God. It's the power of God. It's the healing of God. And then flowing out of that garden, it broke into four rivers, north, south, east, west, going to every corner of the world. Bring God his presence, his shalom, his healing, his kingdom every square inch of a world that he loves. And we are now that garden. And it will be costly because that too is what Mark 13 is about. So much of Jesus' prophecy here, he's telling his disciples how much it's gonna cost, how much this mission is gonna cost the arrests, the trials, the beatings. Verse 13, how the world, the world is gonna hate them. So this is a question I get asked a lot, probably more lately than than ever before, and, and people will ask me in some version of this, Rod, are we living in the last days? Are, are, are we in the end times? 
While the scriptures make it very clear that the end times began 2,000 years ago with the death, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. So yes, we are living in the end times, the last days, which began 2,000 years ago. In Hebrews 1, it says, uh, in the past, God spoke through prophets, but in the last days, in these end times, he has spoken to us through his son. Uh, think about Jesus, uh, his, his message that he preached wherever he went. The time has come. The kingdom of God is here. It's right now. Um, this is Peter's, uh, this is the first sermon that's preached uh, at Pentecost, Acts 2. Uh, Peter's text for that day, he goes to Joel 2. In the last days uh, is what Joel talks about. I will pour out my spirit on, on all flesh. And, and so Peter is there to declare, everybody, we are in the last days right now. And that's why there's so much gospel urgency that's oozing from, from these apostles' lives and from the early church. And we do live in the end times. We live in a world that's at war. We live in a world of famine, a world of earthquake, a world that hates Christ, that hates the cause of Christ, that more and more hates those who bear his name. And let me just tell you what this now means for, for Crossroads in 2023. I want you to think about something. Because we're so far removed from, from the world of that temple when God lived in that house on a hill but that we don't know that the whole world would travel to Jerusalem just to find the presence of God. Hundreds of miles. And to think that God now lives in us, that we are his temple, that we are the garden of God. And so if we are going to be God's garden, it starts with, with cultivating this garden and preserving it. This is actually a priest's job. It, it, it's why God uh, ordered a priest. It, it, it was their job description. It was to sanctify the space because this is the space where humanity walked with God, with the holy. It's where the holy God lived. And he now lives in us. Are you right now cultivating this garden? This starts with your relationship with God. Are you walking with the holy? You spend time with the Savior. You daily seek him. You set your mind and heart on him. You see, we can only be Isaiah 58, this well-watered garden, this spring of living water of Maim Kaim, if we are daily drinking that living water. And what about all the unholy things that lurk about us, that creep into our garden? Are we ruthless about guarding and preserving the sanctity of this garden? The Bible tells us our minds are part of this garden, which is why Paul says, take every thought captive to Christ. Our New Testament says our very bodies are the garden of God. Is there sin in your life? 
Are you ruthless about repentance when there is? You see, as priests, because we're a nation of priests, we must cultivate and protect the garden of God. Secondly, we must burn with this mission to be God's garden, to take his gospel, this king, this kingdom to the utter ends of the earth. This is why at Crossroads, we we have no members. We only have missionaries here. There's, There's nothing to join here except for a community that's on mission because we have little patience for self-indulgent spirituality that insists on everything being about us. Just look at our world today. We live in a world that is at war, a world of famine, a world of earthquakes. Our world is plunged into convulsions. There's convulsions everywhere. Listen to Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. That's why people travel thousands of miles, hundreds of miles. God's temple was this place of rest and shalom, of shalom, shalom. It was literally heaven on earth. Who are you? What are you doing here? Who are you? If you belong to him, you are this temple, you are this garden. And why are you here? Your purpose, our purpose is to bring God's life-transforming presence to a world that is convulsing. It's to be a place of rest, shalom to be just a tiny piece of heaven on earth. Where our world is in pain, that we would seek those places to be the very presence of God, bringing shalom to chaos. Is our life counting towards this end? Does this church exist to this end? But you, Crossroads, are a chosen people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, declaring the praises of God, of him who brought you out of darkness into his wonderful world. And God, would you cause uh, that to burn in our, whole, in our souls? Would that burn in this community, this family, God, may we be your garden. May we cultivate it, take care of it, seek you. God, may we care for a world that you love, that you wanna partner with us to bring your heaven to this earth. God, would we be a staircase? Let us burn that passion. It's in your name we pray. Amen.